You are listening to the Habitology Podcast with Melanie White, and today's episode is about overhelping. This episode is specially dedicated to all the people who love helping others, but sometimes take it a bit far into what I call overhelping. Some people might feel a little bit uncomfortable or perhaps even offended when they hear me talking on this topic of overhelping. So right up front, I want to say, I'm really sorry if this is difficult for you to hear, but please hear me out. I'm sure once you listen to some examples and hear what I have to say on the topic of overhelping, that you'll totally get what it's all about. And you might think about things a little differently from now on if you're somebody who does this in your own life or with your own clients. I want to start by talking about the value of helping. Very clearly, helping other people is a wonderful and admirable thing. There are millions of people in the world who are suffering right now and at any given time. So having people around who want to support and offer help is really essential for our society to survive, to grow and to thrive. It makes total sense, right? Support creates a sense of peace and relief. It facilitates recovery from illness. It helps to bring and build strong workplace cultures. So when you have people who really are willing and desire to help others, it plays a massive role in making all those really important shifts happen. And in fact, the number one reason that people sign up for coach training in the first place, is because they want to help others. They want to change their careers and do something more meaningful and purposeful. They want to help people for a living. That's what I see when I welcome new coaches into the training school that I work for. So let's agree right up front that helping people is value and necessary or even essential in our world. And with that put to bed, let's now talk about the concept of overhelping. I want to start by comparing the two and to look at the difference between helping and overhelping. And right at the heart of it, the main difference is that it comes down to who gets empowered by the helping. Is it the person that you're trying to help or is it you? Very simplistically, in a situation where you are truly helping somebody, you're mostly listening and then you're doing or saying just enough for the other person to find their own answers. In a nutshell, that's what helping is. When the person that you're helping works things out on their own, they feel a rush of confidence at their own success and their own ability to solve a problem and they feel self-empowered. So in other words, when people come up with their own ideas in the first place without anybody suggesting anything to them or leading or guiding or steering, they're much more likely to build self-confidence and self-belief than if somebody is telling or suggesting what they should do or what they think might work best. And I want you to contrast that with overhelping, which is where you provide the solution to the other person, therefore establishing your position as the expert or the one who knows best. And in doing that, you're empowering yourself and bolstering your own confidence. What happens when you're the person you're, who, when the person that you're helping sees you as someone who has all the answers? Well, they've just learned that you know more than they do and that they don't know enough. They have just been unwittingly disempowered. So then on to overhelping. Let's dig into that a little deeper. 
Overhelping is when you cross a boundary. You're giving too much opinion or too many ideas or suggestions or advice. You're not listening to the other person and acknowledging their needs and their own motivations. It's when you impart your wisdom or thoughts to steer or guide the person you're helping in a way that you think is best for them. And this removes their power of choice and it shows a lack of respect for their ideas and needs and it shifts the focus away from them and onto you. You become the hero in their journey, not them. So it feels a bit like a hollow victory for both of you. At the simplest level, overhelping can cause a little bit of tension, but at its worst, overhelping results in total disempowerment of the person that you're seeking to help. And it often results in maintaining the status quo, that is, the helped person stays stuck, and it can also cause conflicts, stalemates, and at worst, the breakdown of relationship relationships, I should say. One of the first signs of overhelping in the person being helped is that they become resistant or tense. So if you see that, if you're trying to help someone and you notice that they're becoming a bit defensive or a bit resistant, know that you're on the path to overhelping. I want to give you a couple of real life examples to illustrate this and these are actually versions of true stories. Here are two overhelping examples. The first one I'll call getting sick. Two women became acquainted through a social group. And soon after they'd gotten to know each other, one of these women was struck down with a terrible illness. She lived on her own and was having to do everything for herself. Now this other woman happened to hear about the challenges of the first woman and decided that she'd be helpful and come around and cook and wash and those sorts of things because she was a health professional actually and she knew that she'd be able to assist this woman because she knew this illness and this situation very well. So the support was initially really welcomed but at some point the woman who was ill started feeling a bit smothered. It was too much and this other woman was always in her little house, in her space And she just needed time and space to process what was going on with her body on her own without anybody else taking up all of that physical and mental space. So she politely asked the woman not to come anymore and told her why. But this woman just wanted to help. And being a health professional, she felt that she knew better than the woman who was sick about what that woman needed. As you can imagine, things went a little out of control and went into a downward spiral. And what ensued was a terrible argument and a terrible falling out between these two women, shouting matches and all sorts of awful things. But that helper could not reconcile that the invalid didn't want to be helped and didn't actually need help after a certain point. She persisted relentlessly to breaking point. Now this might sound a little extreme, but it actually happened. And the question is, how might all that tension and conflict help a woman who's terribly ill? Sometimes our desire to help defies all logic and we fall into that trap of overhelping. And this really illustrates pretty clearly how overhelping is more about the person doing the helping and what they think they know than it is about the person receiving help and what they actually want. It is about the helper feeling good about themselves because they're helping someone. So here's my second example. This is one I call the overexcited expert and I've seen many versions of this over the years. Mish is a marathon runner, and her best friend Allie is a little bit on the heavy side and wants to take up running to lose some weight. 
And Ali is a pretty outgoing person, but she's still quite self-conscious about her weight and somewhat intimidated by her best friend's achievements. But since Mish is an expert and Ali knows her so well, she decides to go and ask her for help to start with running to lose some weight. Mish is, of course, thrilled that Ali has finally taken the plunge into running and for asking her for help. She really, really wants to help Ali. So she sits with Ali and reassures her. And by the way, reassurance is a form of judgment. I'm not going to open that can of worms in this episode, but I'm just saying that it is. So they've sat together and Mish helps Ali to create a running plan for the next 12 weeks with gradual increases in pace and distance over the period. Ali's a little bit nervous. It seems a bit big and overwhelming, but she's kind of excited. And Mish has offered to support her along the way. So Ali's keen. Mish gets so pumped up about this plan that she gushes with enthusiasm about Ali's new running regime. And the more she gushes and reassures and gets enthusiastic, the more self-conscious Ali feels herself becoming. And suddenly it feels like she has a lot to live up to, even though she would never say that to Mish. So she gets off to a great start, but two weeks into the program, Ali falls into a bit of a slump after a few stressful days at work, and she doesn't feel like running that, that week. Mish is sending the regular text messages to pump her up, but they're going unanswered for a few days. Ali's receiving them, but she's feeling guiltier as time goes on because she hasn't responded and she's feeling worse, but Mish persists and eventually leaves a voicemail with a supposedly motivational message. Come on, Ali, get back on the horse. You can do it. I know you can. You're only two weeks in. You've got 10 weeks to go. But Ali doesn't see this as motivational. It's pressure. She feels embarrassed that her marathon runner friend is literally chasing her and inadvertently pointing out her mistakes and weaknesses. It's no use. She just doesn't have the discipline or the can-do attitude or any of that stuff toward running that Mish has. She should just quit now because she feels like a total failure. She'll never be what Mish is. She'll never be that pumped up and motivated. So in this situation, Mish has not acknowledged that Ali is a total beginner and needs to work at her own pace and needs perhaps a different sort of support than pump up. Mish is not necessarily acknowledging or respecting how Ali feels or noticing her lack of confidence. Ali interprets all that as expectations and standards that she can't reach because she's not good enough. So they're just two examples of how overhelping can go sour and it can show up in many ways, like doing things for others and feeling resentful that they haven't given you enough recognition or when needing to help consumes you to the point that you feel lost and useless and worthless if you're not helping somebody. As you can probably hear, all of those things are much more about the helper than they are about the helpee. And that's what triggers overhelping. So let's now look at a coaching perspective on helping. In coaching school, we're taught that people are more likely to be empowered and to take responsibility for their own lives if they come up with their own ideas and answers and solutions. And the most tempting thing for a new coach is to jump in with a, have you tried this or what about that? But we have to sit there silently and let our clients figure it out for themselves. You might want to listen to my podcast on empowerment, which is number 53, and I will put a link in the show notes to that so you can learn more about empowering and empowerment behaviour. 
So having talked about the concept that we learn in coaching school, let's have a look at what happens in a coaching session with an experienced coach. Just a rough overview. This is how it plays out when we're actually helping someone in a conversation. The coach will build some rapport with some general chat to the client, with the client, and then ask the client all about themselves. The coach will reflect back what they hear that, that the client is saying and talking about in the client's words. And the coach will ask some really broad questions to keep the conversation going and get the client coming up with their own answers. There's no suggestion or I've got a great idea or leading questions or any of that from the coach. And unless the client specifically asks for help or ideas or suggestions or if there's a glaring risk, their job is to totally stay out of the process and just listen. Now, I might say that the reason that we want to jump in and help and have suggestions and share our ideas or our experiences is that it's hard for a coach to see your client struggling with discomfort. We ask our clients a question, how to do something, where to fit it in, what they might be able to do, what their options are, and the clients might sit there and feel unsure of themselves, maybe not believing in themselves, feeling hesitant, worrying about making mistakes. And when we see these things on other people's faces and we hear these things in our voices, we desperately want to help. We want to end that struggle. Do you recognise the discomfort of that feeling of seeing somebody struggle to find their own answer and just wanting to jump in and help them? It's totally human nature to want to suggest things or ask, have you thought about this or what about that or I know how you can fix it. There's even a psychological term to describe this and it's called the writing reflex. But in that moment when we want to make things right, what we're doing is robbing the person of the opportunity to stand up for themselves, to make some decisions, to get clarity. We are robbing their moment of self-empowerment. And it's such an important and critical time in your journey to becoming empowered. So if you're listening to someone else, if you're a coach or you're helping someone work through something, you just want to be silent here and avoid interfering with or blocking that person's aha moment. So in the coaching situation, the coach really needs to get out of the way and let their client do that work and sit in the muck for a moment, even if it's a bit uncomfortable for everybody, because the reward will be way sweeter and greater when this happens. Now, this is great if you've done coach training and you understand these principles and you've had lots of practice with clients. Let's say that you've become very good at listening and not interfering, and that's fabulous because it means when people come to see you, they will truly become empowered on their own terms. They will feel confident to make decisions for themselves. They won't be second-guessing themselves anymore. And they'll be learning to trust their inner wisdom and to make choices that are meaningful and relevant for them. It means they will start to create success on their own terms and feel good about it. And this will have a flow-on effect in all areas of life, of their lives, showing up in their relationships and their work and their family. They'll feel more confident and be more proactive and assertive. It's an upward spiral. And you can help people do that just by being there and helping in the right way. So let's talk about how to stop overhelping. There are really four things that you need to do if you want to stop overhelping. The first thing is to become self-aware, to become the watcher of your thoughts so that you can notice the urge to help when it comes up. 
This gives you time to temper your thoughts and to head off overhelping at the pass before it becomes a thing. So let's say that you've watched your thoughts and you've realized that you have this urge to help and you're with someone at that moment and they're struggling. So the the thing that you need to do next, the second thing, is to just sit there and listen and truly hear what's going on, what the other person is saying, what they want and need before you offer help. And even say back to them what you just heard them say because they will hear themselves and get their own answers that way. But if they're still stuck, the third step is to ask the person how they would like you to help them. It might be something as simple as, as, what can I do to help you right now? And then let them answer. Let them tell you what they need or don't need or want or don't want. Just leave it totally up to them. And finally, whatever they say, honour it. Do what they ask and nothing more. So let's wrap up the topic of helping versus overhelping. Just to summarise, the difference between helping and overhelping is who ends up empowered, the helpee or the helper. Remember that the first sign that you're overhelping someone is that they have some resistance or tension or defensiveness in the way that they're interacting with you. You can feel this resistance coming up. And the four-step process to stop overhelping is firstly to watch your own thoughts and your urges to help and to temper them. Take a step back and go into step number two. Listen to the helpee, the person you're helping. Hear what's going on for them. Number three, ask how you can help them in this moment. And number four, respect their request and honour it. If you need assistance with overhelping, if you'd like to learn how to be a more effective helper, you can visit melaniejwhite.com forward slash habitology, H-A-B-I-T-O-L-O-G-Y, and learn more about how I can help you to help people effectively with confidence and with clear boundaries. That's it from me for today. I look forward to seeing you soon. Bye for now.